Insurance Post podcast with me, Jonathan Swift, the title's content director. And today we'll be discussing whether insurance is indeed our global safety net. 2020 has already seen a number of major events. Severe storms battered Europe, Britain's official withdrawal from the EU, climate-related catastrophes, including the Australian and Brazilian bush and wildfires, and now, to top it all off, the rampaging coronavirus pandemic that is impacting almost every place on Earth. And we're only just into April. With so much risk and concern for businesses, governments and people alike, how prepared are insurers to manage these risks? And are they ready to support us in the years ahead? Are they truly our global safety net? And what will the next big challenge be for our risky world? Now, I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by two experts in the world of risk management and insurable risk who will give an overview as to how to how in a world of multiple catastrophic threats, businesses, governments and individuals should plan, strategize and prepare for the next major CAT event. So I'm delighted to say joining me, I have Edward Messer, Head of Catastrophe Management at Aon and David Rubens, CEO of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, David, if I can come to you first of all, um, as it has been described as a crisis of a generation, can we start by quickly looking specifically at, at the COVID-19 pandemic? We've heard plenty about the impact on the global economic, economies and societies. However, as these crises have unfolded, what has it told us about our preparedness to respond to major catastrophes? Um, I, well, you've gone straight to the heart of the matter at the, at the beginning. There was no no soft introduction there, was there? <laughs> no. Um, the, the truth of the matter is we've done very well. I mean, in terms of responding to what was genuinely an unprecedented event, I think the word unprecedented has been well overused in the last 10 years. But there is no question about it that what we're going through, although the event, technically speaking, the event is not unprecedented. We've had, um, on a, over the last 20 years, it's about every two and a half years we have a pandemic. We had SARS, we've had Zika, we've had MERS. H1N1, avian flu, swine flu. Um, so it's not unexpected. And then of course we have flu itself, which um, kills more than all of those people put together um, on a regular basis. So the event itself, technically speaking, is not unprecedented. But what is unprecedented is the impacts that it's had on our societies. And certainly we're in a position now, which no one would have ever have been able to conceive of five or six weeks ago. The first death in UK was on the 5th of March. We're now three weeks, just over three weeks later than that. And society as we know it has changed. In my own opinion, um, I think the decisions that have been made have been made with courage and conviction. Um, it is of course always easy to second guess people, but um, in situations like this, it's also easy to freeze. And I think that overall, we have seen a a genuine um, willingness and an ability to grapple with issues which are incredibly technically complex and challenging and frightening. If I might say on that point, what has been missing, radically missing, is the global response. We've been talking about globalization for 50 years. We've been talking about global institutions for 50 or 70 years since the end of the Second World War. And yet we have seen almost no global activity in response to what is a genuinely global pandemic and global issue. The EU has made no statements. The G20 has been almost inactive. The World Health Organization has been doing very good work. The United Nations in general has not. 
And we are seeing very much countries really responding to this on a country by country basis. When you would have hoped that the lessons learned from previous pandemics were, we do need to have an integrated global response capability framework that will be able to respond to exactly the situation we're in now. Do you think that lessons will be learned, David, and, and if, if this would happen again, there would be that kind of, you know, joined up international response? It's an excellent question. The, the truth of the matter is that in almost all cases, lessons are not learned. As an example, um, for a global event was the 2008 eco global economic crash, um, financial crash rather. Um, everything that created that is back again on steroids. So um, the, the likelihood is that's going to happen exactly the same again. Um, are, are we going to learn? I would hope so. Um, but my own feeling is um, it would be lovely if we did. For example, we've seen on a global basis that within two or three or four days of cities shutting down, air pollution has increased, um, fish are back in the rivers. So the problems we, we've been facing with and engaging with, grappling with, in terms of climate change and the impact on, on, on the global ecosystems, we've just had demonstrated that actually we can see very radical recovery very quickly if we see basic changing in behavior. The question is whether that's sustainable. In China, for example, who are now going, they, they are now claiming that they're into the downward slope of, of their own pandemic experience. Um, we see pollution back again. We see um, uh, travel going back again. We see the live food markets coming back again. Um, so the question is, will we recover forward or will we recover back? I think there may be some impacts at the community level. I think we're going to see some genuine impacts on community engagement. But whether overall the global systems are going to be changing, I personally find that doubtful. And Ed, if, if I can come to you, I mean, what would you say is specifically what can we expect in terms of the impact on the, the insurance sector? Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, I think, um, well, it's as David said, you know, it's a systemic financial risk that touches pretty much every part of our economy, including insurance and reinsurance. So, you know, I think there are several areas that it is going to impact the most. I think the first one that comes to mind is contingency. So this is a, a line of business that's been written out of the London market for hundreds of years. We're really talking about things like event cancellation here. So the Olympics is, is a prime example of this. So over $2 billion of exposure. And it's going to be big companies like Munich Re and Swiss Re that are heavily exposed to the, the cancellation cover for, for that event. But there are others as well, such as you know Wimbledon, um, Glastonbury, Edinburgh Festival, I think, got cancelled today. Um, the US trade shows. So some pretty meaningful ex exposures across the world. Um, and that's lots of revenue, but also sponsorship as well. So I think contingency will be heavily impacted. I think on the property side, this is potentially where it gets um, a little bit fuzzier, if you like. So property, most property covers from a commercial context cover business interruption. But in order for those business interruption policies to be utilized, there usually has to be some kind of physical property damage. It's relatively unusual to have non-damage business interruption extensions in contracts. So what we're seeing at the moment is that lots of reinsurers are moving to 
try and exclude pandemic and communicable disease from their covers. Um, but the, the US government in particular haven't taken too kindly to this and actually trying to enforce insurance companies to pay out business interruption claims where there has been where there hasn't been any actual property physical damage. So that's that's one that we're watching closely. But I think you know from an industry perspective, and I know the ABI have been in contact with our government and, and they've been liaising very closely. But I think the UK government have done a fantastic job in stepping in to, to bail out businesses. But if you think about the the 4.1 trillion pounds of UK business turnover in the UK. Actually, the insurance industry um, or UK insurers as a whole only have assets of 2.2 trillion pounds. So we're not really able to to cover um, the whole of the UK in terms of business interruption. And actually, the government does have to act as a backstop, which really leads us to, to, to start the conversation around in the future, if this sort of event happens again, how can we be better prepared uh, to, to, to manage it as an industry? And where will the government's role be in that? And I think really there's calls at the moment to have a pandemic pool in the industry. So similar to things like Pool Re, which covers terrorism, and Flood Re, which covers floods and makes insur- uh, insurance policies more affordable for members of the public. Do we need to start thinking about a pandemic re, so a government-backed insurance pool that in the event of a pandemic such as this, um, potentially it could uh, it could cover those sorts of risks. Can, can I ask you, um, Ed, do you think the insurance industry's reputation to some extent has taken a, a hit in, in any way because of the, I mean, I've seen quite a few bit of negative coverage in terms of like BI and what is covered and what's not covered, whether it's you know, a, a rugby team or a football team or, a, a, you know, even a kind of a, a, a shop or a theatre or a cinema, those kind of those kind of places. Um, you know, it, it's at times like this where our product is tested. And I think there'll be some insurance companies that come out of this better than others. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what we sell is promises. And if we're not able to deliver on those promises or we create ways of getting ourselves out of those promises, then I don't think that looks very good on the industry. Having said that, there will be some companies that, you know, have very clear policy um, where business interruption is covered in some instances, and that is where their product will will shine through. I suppose we should remember that, you know, outside of coronavirus, we were beginning to see more and more efforts put into tackling other potential catastrophes, including uh, climate change uh, before before this. How much of a challenge does this present for for insurers today? Uh, and I'll come to you first on that, um, Ed. Yeah, so this is an area that I've been um, spending a lot of time on recently. Um, so I, I run the catastrophe management team Aon. So we use a lot of statistical models to try and help insurance companies and reinsurance companies assess climate risk, so weather risk. And obviously with climate change, the potential for those sorts of acute natural catastrophes is changing. And it's a massive issue, I think, for the industry as a whole, because actually we're basing our current view of risk on retrospective data. So all of the data that goes into the very sophisticated models that we use to 
price insurance and reinsurance contracts to um, to hold capital against those risks is all based on what's happened historically. And I think that is a systemic challenge because actually we can't just use historical data sets to, to work out what's going to happen in the future. So part of the work that we've been doing recently is looking at the the, uh, the natural sciences um, behind the forcings that are actually causing the to try and work out if we can condition and adjust catastrophe models to better predict what's going to happen in the future. But if you take things like US hurricane as a as a major peril, probably the major peril that drives a lot of the pricing, certainly in the Lloyd's market, um, the signal there is quite interesting. So um, because of climate change in the next few years, that they're expecting to see an increase in the number of severe hurricanes um, in the Gulf of Mexico. But interestingly, the, there'll be a reduction in, in the overall frequency of those storms. So there'll be fewer storms, but they'll be more intense. Not only will they be more intense, but they'll actually be slower moving as well and also better. So they're going to hold more rain and more potential for, for heavy rainfall. So as soon as they hit land, these storms will be dumping down huge amounts more water than potentially a storm like that could have done 30 years ago. So I think flooding is going to be... Um, you know, a, a huge uh, peril for the future as, as, as we, you know, move towards a world where climate risk is changing rapidly. But we can also use these models uh, to great effect by changing certain parameters within them to try and provide insurance companies with more robust scenario analyses so they can start testing those on their own portfolios and working out what their, their worst case could be. Can I ask, um, David, I mean, again, climate change, what kind of uh, challenges does this pose for the uh, risk management community? I think it's a very interesting question. Um, and I think the question um, from, a, I'm not an insurance person at all, but I understand this, uh, this requirement to basically build a model. And technically, historically speaking, you build a model based on historical data and you build a development line and you project into the future. But that's based on rational assumptions. You're assuming that things will more or less be the same into the future, and then you allow for different things. I've just quickly brought up two quotes. I'd like to just quote to show the different attitudes to changing, um, change, the changing nature of the risk we're facing, which I think will impact massively on every aspect of, of the world we're in, including insurance and the ability to get insurance. One was from Mark Carney. Chairman of the obviously of the Bank of England, um, and it says Mark Carney tells global banks they cannot ignore climate change dangers. A financial sector is warned that it risks losses from extreme weather and its stake in polluting firm in polluting firms. So that will have an impact on them. But basically, what Mark Carney is saying is the model will remain the same. We have to do better. We need to have we need to use them. The model itself is good. It's fit for purpose. And the second quote is from Klaus Schwab, who is the World Economic Forum Executive Chairman. And this is from the 2019, that's last year, World Economic Forum Global Risk Report. And he said, our world currently stands on the brink of a mass political, technological and social shift, which will transform our existence in ways we cannot yet possibly know. That is a different uh, paradigm. And when we talk about it within the Institute of Strategic Risk Management, 
we would say that Mark Carney is looking at evolutionary or revolutionary change. And Klaus Schwab is looking at mutational change. It's mutating to something different. And I think one of the interesting, interesting is an interesting word, but one of the, the, the concepts that we have to grapple with is, is the world that we're moving into from a risk perspective, a continuation of the world as it was in 1995? Or is it a different, are we moving into a different paradigm? Um, uh, uh, and you look at things like Ed mentioned um, flooding. Um, flooding, of course, is, is now a, a reality for pretty well every major city in the world. Um, there's going to be between 35 and 50 mega cities by the year 2035. Mega city, 10 million people or more. Almost all of those are on the coastal areas. So when we have we see sea rises, which is happening now on a regular basis, the reality is, what does it mean to live in cities that are underwater six months of the year? Now there are cities which are already existing. Your Dakar is like that. I spent two and a half years in Lagos. And four months of the year, Lagos is basically underwater. And so I think in, in understanding of trying to model what future risks are about, I think we'd have to have a really honest, open discussion um, about, about what that means. And one of the, when we discuss it, one of the opening approaches we have is, do we believe that the world we're in is actually resilient and growing in resilience? Or is it fragile and brittle? Um, resilience has been the word de nos jours of the last 10 years. It's the word that everybody uses. Um, it's at the heart of most policies, resilience. And yet, if you ask people, do you believe, is the world more resilient or less resilient now than 20 years ago? The vast majority of people say it's not only fragile, it is brittle. It breaks easily. Um, and I think that's uh, an issue that we're all going to be facing, with. we're all going to having to deal with um, on an ongoing basis into the long-term future. So, I mean, Ed, taking David's point there, can I ask resilience, that is a, a very popular word, in a highly globalised world with many events happening, plenty of risk to manage, how resilient is the insurance industry in its preparedness for the catastrophes of today? Um, I, th I think it's I think it's a very good question, um, and, it, and it's one that's particularly hard to measure. I think when you talk about resilience, you look at the tools that insurance companies have got to help them um, actually identify and measure risk and they have come on you know leaps and bounds since i first started the industry 15 years ago i mean catastrophe modeling itself was you know in its infancy and not particularly well understood whereas now there's you know incredible computing power and people are bringing out or companies are bringing out high definition modeling techniques which are really changing the industry and changing insurance companies i think the modeling is is one aspect of it I think another thing that people often overlook is the transition risk. So as we transition to a lower carbon economy, what are the risks associated with that? And I think that's something that the insurance industry probably has quite a lot of work to do still to try and measure and quantify that impact. If you're a, um, a Lloyd's insurer and you're insuring, let's say, coal thermal production facilities in, in the US, then actually there's a potential for those assets to become uh, what we define as stranded. So where they become uninsurable because of changes in government legislation. So, you know, what do you suddenly do with that premium that you've lost because you're, you were insuring um, uninsurable risks? So can you reinvest that premium in things like renewable energy or in um, carbon technologies that are, that are lower 
uh, or less intensive. So I think there's the physical risk side, the transition risk side, and then there's also the investment risk as well. So if you're an investor looking to pump money into the insurance industry because it is still you know a very profitable asset class what are the measures that insurance companies are taking to to be more resilient and to um and to make sure that their environmental and social governance policies are um are, are best in class so I, I think there are kind of three elements to it really um i think also the insurance industry has a responsibility um to try and close the protection gap as well so by the protection gap i really mean helping governments and countries become more resilient so at the moment globally less than 70 percent of economic losses are actually insured um, which i think is a big problem so i think insurance companies need to do more to try and close that gap as much as they can david can i ask you what role does technology and analytics tools play in, in risk management as well as catastrophe preparedness um i think what we're doing is we're, we're losing the ability to model what goes on. I mean, how can we model if, for example, we lose the totality of um, satellite communications? I mean, what, what does that mean? Um, one of the technical definitions of, of, of unprecedented is clearly it hasn't happened before. And because it hasn't happened before, we actually don't, we, we lose that sense making from an academic perspective. We, we don't have anything to grasp onto. Usually when we look at something, the way that we make sense of it is we compare it to something else. This looks like that. Um, in, in much the way that, you know, um, a giraffe looks like a horse in some way. Um, and yet what we're looking at now is, is events for which we have absolutely nothing to compare them to. Um, and we're looking, I think that um, Ed used the word systemic. And they are, they're genuinely systemic. They take down the whole system. Um, and if you're, if you're within it, there, there is nothing to hold on to. What I do think is interesting, which Ed um, um, uh, referred to, was modeling, modeling technology and certainly artificial intelligence. Um, I'm getting more and more interested and fascinated by, by what artificial intelligence can do or has the potential to do. Um, and I think in modeling complex risk, it's, very, it's a potentially a very useful tool. Um, I think we are, as a, uh, the world, now talking about artificial intelligence and what it can do is like somebody in 1989, who was using a typewriter trying to explain what the potential for a computer would be, in that we just don't know. Most people who write about artificial intelligence and modeling of complex pro problems seem to think that artificial intelligence will help us do what we do better. I think that's completely wrong. I think artificial intelligence will do stuff that we have absolutely no concept about. Um, and I'm not going to tell the story, it's a long story, but I mean, the 1990s, Kasparov um, was beaten by a computer, Deep Blue, um, just about. But people always said that Go, the Chinese game of Go, was too complex for any computer to, 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 be, to be taught. Um, in, the, in the middle of the 2014, 2015, um, AlphaGo was given a learning logarithm and it taught itself to play Go and moved up the ranks and eventually beat the world champion. Um, and the world champion said, not only did this computer beat me, but it plays Go, which I cannot conceive of. It's just moved out. So we moved from within 10 years from Go, from a computer never being able to play Go to then superseding anything that a human being could even conceive of. They then created AlphaGo Zero, the next stage up, and that beat AlphaGo 100 to zero. 
as you'd expect a superior computer to be to an, uh, an inferior computer. So what it was showing is that it's moving into realms which we just cannot conceive of. And my own feeling is that there's going to be some unbelievable developments in artificial intelligence that will allow us to actually model some of what it means in terms of flooding, um, mass movements of mass humans, um, resource shrinkage, water, for example, um, et cetera, et cetera. So on that sense, I think the tools are there that could be used to create a much better understanding of what we need to do. I think the problem, as is always, is human behavior. Um, I, I think human behavior, and to a large extent, human stupidity, um, is going to be the, def the, the def def defining and deciding criteria, rather than the, uh, the technology we have available to us. So, I mean, Ed, taking that all on, on board, how can the insurance industry get a handle on, on the challenges around developing and modelling a conceptual understanding of emergent, strategic and systemic risks? I mean, I think if I knew the answer to that, answer to that question, I'd be a very, very wealthy man. Um, that's, that's not an easy one to answer. I think um, let's take an example. Uh, so I'd say cyber insurance. I mean, that's the, the premium base for cyber insurance has increased massively over the last few years. And it's only going to increase further as we move to, you know, an even connected world than we're already in. Um, but the nature of cyber attacks are changing on a daily basis. And we've started modeling cyber risk and we've got, I'd say, some fairly advanced modeling techniques to look at that line of business. But because of the daily changing nature in risk, we have more data into the models to allow us to, to even keep up with the new, new hacks that are happening every day. So that's, that's a, an incredibly um, fast-paced, rapidly changing environment. And I think you can almost liken it to, to climate change in a sense. Climate change is, is slower paced, but there is so much climatic data that we just need to keep on reinvesting in these models to try and improve the accuracy and reduce uncertainty as much as we can. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think there's a, there's a, a definite answer, um, but I certainly think that improving the sophistication of models to almost make them as real time as possible using things like david said like um artificial intelligence and machine learning to to, to try and make them as robust as possible so that um we can answer some of the challenges or the challenging questions that insurers face i think you know there's the old adage that all models are wrong but some are useful and i, and I think that's certainly the case here i was gonna say because i mean i think david alluded to it do you think that there is a risk as events shift and change wildly, uh, like climate change, past data is perhaps no longer as relevant and suitable in predicting the future as it once was seen to be? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So so there are two there are two parts to natural hazards when you're talking about climate risk. So there's the change in acute hazards. So, you know, events that that happen, natural catastrophes that happen, like the wildfire events in Australia, um, there are acute hazards. And can we attribute those events to climate change? And actually, there's a whole um, subset of science called extreme event attribution, whose sole purpose really it is to answer the question, has this event been impacted by climate change? But then there's also the chronic risk side. So as temperatures slowly increase, what what changes does that make to the to the whole atmosphere and the, the oceanic systems? So there are a huge amount of variation and variables in there. But I agree that 
just looking at the historical data sets certainly isn't going to be um, good enough going forward. I think we need to start thinking further ahead, even though in the insurance industry, directly, we've only looked at things at time scale. Actually, we need to start thinking about longer term coverages as well, I think. So if you think about the mortgage industry um, and the lending industry, you know, they're they're on risk for, for 30 years or more in some instances. And during that time, you know, you can see a huge variation in the risk itself. So I think we need to be a bit more forward thinking as an industry and, and not just think about things um, at arm's length and what's going to happen in the next year. We need to be a bit more progressive than that, I think. David, I presume you agree and concur with that. I, no, I absolutely agree. I think um, I think we're we're all grappling. What What's interesting is um, I like your use of it's um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. That actually absolutely reflects the foundational uh, academic paper of um, risk. What we what are called wicked problems, non-rational problems, um, and that they have ten principles. But one of the principles is decisions you make within wicked problems, within non-rational problems, are neither good nor bad, nor right nor wrong, because you have no way of knowing what the outcome will be. They are only useful or not useful. Do they help you progress your project at this moment based on the available evidence? And what's interesting is, it seems to me when I hear people who know a lot more about this than I do, and I've grappled with it a lot more, it seems we're almost trying to find a language to describe it. We're using analog, language to describe digital, we're using digital language to describe, describe whatever the next stage up is. And my own feeling is that as somebody who's involved in strategic and catastrophic risk management, thinking and, and research and writing and all that sort of stuff, we're actually really, really struggling to find a language that describes it. We haven't developed that. And my feeling is that the risk language of 1995 does not describe the risk environment of 2025. And I think that's going to be an interesting development um, as we move through the next weeks and months. Is it possible at all for us to assess future risks that kind of the yet as yet unknowns? And I suppose I'll come to you, Ed, afterwards. I mean, how do insurers even get ready to manage these? Uh, but David, you first. I, I think it's impossible. I actually, I actually think um, it's an impossible question. I think it's, um, I, th I, I would, Speaking as a layman, as an outsider, it seems to me that the whole idea of the mathematical understanding of risk, which is based on predictability, it is based on the continuation of historical norms. You know, I imagine if you were building a 1995 flood map, you could probably use data from the 19th century and 18th century. You could not do that anymore. So my feeling is, what are the, what are the, the, the threats we're facing? What are the impacts and what are the future costs? And from my perspective, I have absolutely no way how one could do that. Ed, what's your view from uh, the insurance side then on the the, un, the unknown? The unknown unknowns. Um, <laughs> again, I think if you could quantify that, then you know that would be a fantastic thing. But sadly, as humans, we learn from experience, um, which means that we're often incredibly reactive to, to things that happen to us, as opposed to thinking properly about a scenario-based approach. So I think more time should be spent thinking about things that haven't happened yet and things that potentially could happen. Uh, it still amazes me that we work in an industry where, you know, you have events like Harvey, Irma and Maria in 2017 that, you know, huge, huge amounts, billions and billions of dollars of loss. Um, and then there is the next year when it comes to pricing those same insurance and reinsurance contracts, 
you see huge spikes in premium cost. But if these models are right, and actually if these insurance companies' pricing models were correct, then surely actually that would have been factored in and you would have a much more consistent premium base over time. But sadly, you know, that doesn't happen and the industry is incredibly reactive to, to any sorts of events that, that happen. So uh, I think it's a really tough one. But I would say that that um, scenario analysis is probably the way forward. So thinking about some of those unknown unknowns and trying to quantify them, which again is something that that we do very much on the um, the cyber the cyber front, thinking what hackers and what nation state actors could actually do to to certain um, uh, web service providers and to certain global companies. So I suppose bringing it back to the here and now, um, and back to COVID nineteen and the. Uh rising damages caused by climate change. What do you think is the likely impact on individual risk management? And I would like to see a rise in the general population taking out insurance rather than necessarily products and services to ensure they're protected in the event of a, a major catastrophe. And I'll come to you first of all on this, Ed. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, certainly for, for, let's face it, for medium and large companies, they will take out insurance policies, or the majority of them do, to protect them from a, a, a large number of different catastrophe events. It's the the SMEs and you know the um, the the Joe public that actually don't take out these sorts of policies. Partly, it's an affordability thing. I think um, you know it's a again a very human thing. You you only sort of want to buy things that you can tangibly see the value for there and then. So I think what we need to do as an industry is make insurance as a whole much more accessible. And I think, you know, given the technological advances that we've got at the moment, um, we need to move towards more of what the uh, motor insurers are doing around telematics and only paying for when you use cars in some instances, moving towards more of a gig economy for insurance and making things like individual cyber policies much more accessible for, for everyday users. And David, do you have a view on this? Well, as, a, as an insurance user, um, I think that in my in my feeling, um, insurance is a <laughs> is a painful necessity. I, mean, I don't see it as a. It's not something that is part of my team or supportive. It's something one does once a year because you really have to. And on a bad year, you don't, and you cross your fingers. I think there is a role to play. You know, this this um, COVID nineteen coronavirus is bringing back the idea that solutions have to be all society solutions rather than, than disjointed, disconnected sections of it. And I think that you asked before, you know, are we moving forward? Are we going to be learning? Will there be some significant developments? It may well be that the insurance company has a significant role to play as supporting developments of innovative solutions to the complex system situations we're facing and becoming an enabler. And because there's no question about it that risk management is not just about mitigating unwanted events. It's also about enabling and empowering people to do things. Um, and I think that coming back to that idea of are we going to change the paradigm thinking, it may well be that the insurance companies or the insurance sector um, has a role to play in, in identifying and exploring um, new and emergent opportunities. I'd, I'd just um, add to that, if I may, as well, Jonathan. Um, 
you know, I think I think David's absolutely right. And I think um actually in terms of risk transfer, the industry needs to come up with more innovative solutions. And I think one of the things that um some more progressive companies are doing at the moment is thinking about parametric covers. So rather than you know, if if I have a loss to, you know, my my property, rather than having to put through a, a claim and to wait for a long time to actually receive the money. I have a parametric cover where I know that if the wind blows over a certain speed, there will be an automatic payment to me um, because the insurance company knows that that will cause a loss to my home. Um, and that money is, is, is liquid and comes straight into my account. So I think parametric covers um, are certainly an area where, um, where we could focus more on. Okay, excellent. Well, unfortunately, um, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank Ed and David for their time uh, uh, taken out to participate. And I'd also like to thank you all for listening. To keep up to date with the latest risk management news, obviously, please check out www.postonline.co.uk and tune into our next podcast where we'll be tackling the issue of the use of and the ethics of using data for insurance purposes. I hope you look forward to tuning into that podcast too. But from Ed, David and me, it's goodbye. Cheerio.